0: Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast.
1: Thank you. Glad you're all here tonight. If you didn't get a handout sheet, raise your hand. I don't know if anybody came in late. If you'd like a second one, raise your hand. Okay, we're going to start a series for the month of May in a book that is a follow-up to a book that we taught several years ago called Not a Fan. I don't know, very many of you were here when we went through that. Same author, Kyle Eidelman, he's a pastor of Southeastern Christian Church in Louisville, one of the biggest churches in the country. Uh, And he's written some great books. We did uh, Gods at War uh, a year or so ago. That was one of his books. Um, And so, if you look at the cover of the book, I know it's a little hard to see. The title is called The End of Me. But what you probably can't see very well, there's a slash that goes through me and has Jesus on the other side. That's a subtle hint Of what this book is going to be about so um, let's get started tonight and I want to ask you a question how would you define the good life how would you define the good life I'm open to answers say it again George Serving Christ, that is very true. Yes. Other people in the world may answer that question just a little bit differently. Have you seen a movie, read a book, uh, played a game online that, that talked about what the good life really was? I mean, to some people, the good life means I don't have any problems. I walk through every day. Nothing happens. That was not today for me, by the way. Um, So I'm walking in here with this angst in my stomach, and I just, God, calm me down. It's your words. It's your teaching. So take a breath. (laughs) Step back. Let him do what he's going to do. So I want to give you an introductory story from the book because I think it really really puts this into perspective. So I'll I'll just read how Kyle starts this book, The End of Me. I sat in my church office staring at a blank screen, preparing to write the introduction to this book, when my assistant reminded me of a few phone calls I needed to make. I decided to knock out the phone calls before I started to type. I'm that way. If I can put off typing up a document, (laughs) I'll do it. Some of you are nodding your head because if you can procrastinate your procrastination, you're really in good shape. Anyway, the first call went to voicemail and I left a message. The next one wouldn't be so easy. I was returning a call to a man named Brian. I read in my notes that his 18-month-old son had died a few weeks earlier. Now, just get that in perspective. 18-month-old son died. I didn't know the details, but as a father of four, I can't imagine such loss. I said a prayer as I dialed his number. Brian answered with a monotone, hello. Having had many conversations like this over the past 20 years, I knew there was not much I could say. So after expressing my heartbreak for his loss, I allowed silence to settle into our conversation. After a few moment, moments, Brian said four words that I was not prepared to hear. I backed over him. How do you respond to that? More silence as his words sank in. I then told him I had not made, I had not been aware of that and asked if he wanted to tell me what happened. He went on to explain that they didn't know their son had walked outside. In fact, they didn't even know he was capable of opening the door to go outside. Listening, I found myself wondering how parents survive such tragedy. When he finished telling me what they had been going through, I followed up by asking a question that always feels ridiculous in moments like this. So, how are you? Ridiculous question, right? Believe me, I know that doesn't seem like the right question to ask. What he's, what's he supposed to say? And yet I knew he was calling weeks after it happened for a reason. I assumed he had something in mind to share with me. After describing his horrific experience, he began to convey how he discovered Jesus in a way he never had before. His faith had gone from attending church once in a while as tradition to running into God's arms in complete desperation. I had a page open on my computer where I was going to be writing the introduction for this book. And without even thinking about it, I quickly typed this out. This is what he said. I feel like I reached this point in my life when I had absolutely nothing left. Keep in mind, he had four kids, so he had something left. But that's how he felt. And it turns out that for the first time in my life, Jesus has become real. Do you know what I mean? Is that unusual? Yes, I know what you mean. And no, it's not unusual. When he reached the end of himself, he discovered Jesus. I prayed for Brian and his family, then hung up and wondered how many other people would say they experienced this same kind of beautiful irony. So I jumped on Facebook and posted the following. Finish the sentence. I want you to think about this. Finish the sentence. Jesus became real when... Jesus became real when? So you think about that a little bit. So within hours, I'd received hundreds of responses. So what's your response? When did Jesus become real? You got something you want to share? I know for me, when I hit that point in my life where I couldn't see Any way up. I found out that God is all I need at that point. And sometimes it's never before that that it sinks into my head and my heart. He's all I need. Jesus became real when? And that's on your sheet. And I'm going to ask you to fill in that blank. It's on the back side of the sheet. It's one of the questions I want you to think about. I want you to think about it every day this week. Think about when did Jesus become real to you? Or maybe He hasn't, and I'm praying that He will. So, in the the time that we've got tonight, I want to talk about coming to the end of me and getting to the beginning of Jesus. And so, on your sheet, I have typed out a letter that that Kyle wrote based on this, and I, I want you to kind of follow along as i read that it's called a letter or a note to me this may sound weird but just go with me on it okay i've known you as long as i can remember this is me writing to me (laughs) i once heard there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother and yes that's us though i doubt it's what the proverb was talking about I've been close to a lot of people, but you and me, we have quite an attachment. Looking back, it's fair to say I've treated you pretty well. As a matter of fact, when more times than I can count, I've put you ahead of anything and everything else. Right? As we're growing up, I tried to make sure you were always at the front of the line. I saw to it that you got the biggest cookie on the plate, the best parking spot, the comfiest chair in any room we entered. In school, I noticed the little things you liked, and I went after them. You always loved attention, so I did everything in my power to see that you got it. You still like the spotlight, so I've maneuvered to keep you in its glare now that we have the internet i have more tools i post only the pictures that show you at your very best anybody would think you're living the dream have you seen the comments people write about you when you have struggled or had a hard time i've done my best to keep that our little secret i've tried to make you happy remember he's writing to himself sure it was a little easier to keep you happy when you were a cute little tyke. A simple tenter temper tantrum got the job done. Then, as we grew older, I had to be a little more discreet. You wanted to keep winning and getting your way, all the while looking humble and unassuming. That gets tricky, not to mention tiring. As a matter of fact, you have never seemed to care about dull stuff like bills and consequences and what happens tomorrow. I've said more than a few harsh words on your behalf to certain people and you have never warned me about the mess. You never told me I couldn't unsay what I've said. I love you, me, but I can't keep living for you. You always insisted that I just keep you happy. Then I'd be happy. As simple as that. But you know what? It's not as simple as that. It never has been. Me, me, I've let you be in control and sit in the driver's seat, but it's clear you can't be trusted. You keep insisting you know the way we should go, but it always seems like a dead end. I've looked into some other options and I've decided to begin a journey down a different path. It's narrow and difficult, and not many choose it, but it leads to a life, I'm sorry, it leads to real and abundant life. However, And there is no easy way to say this. I can't take this path if I bring you along. So, me, this is the end of you. Signed, me. It's an interesting letter that he wrote to himself. And there's a couple scriptures that I've got down at the bottom of the page. My old self has been crucified. This is Galatians 2.20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's, that's the New Living Translation. And then Luke 9.23. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways Take up your cross daily and follow me. So there's the letter to me. (laughs) Interesting to write that to yourself. Tonight, we're going to look at a topic that's called broken to be whole. Okay, And we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5. Anybody know what's in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7? Sermon on the Mount. So, where was this preached? It, it was it was by the Sea of Galilee. Yes, and you could say, well, duh, it's on a mount. Well, not quite that obvious, because it's not like Mount Carmel or Mount Nebo or Mount Sinai. <laughs> we were on a tour, and they took us to a place where they said probably this is where he he spoke, and so one of our group went up on the mountainside and spoke to us down below. And it was like being amplified. The voice spread out, and you could hear it very clearly. So that's maybe one of the reasons why Jesus used that venue to talk to people. No microphone. No sound system. And that's what they were used to. So we're going to begin and... For the classes this month, we're going to look at one Beatitude, or as I like to say, a B, Attitude, split it into two. It's, it's how you want to be, and this is the attitude you need to get there. So it's a B, Attitude. Maybe it's too simple, I'm sorry. You want it more complicated. Well, I'll give you more complicated, because Jesus turns the world upside down when he preaches this sermon. So, memory verse for the week. Matthew five three. but let's get there. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, here's the verse. Learn it in any translation that you want. I bet it will be very similar. Here's how it goes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And you say to yourself, I can relate to the poor. I don't know how we're going to pay the bills this month. Right? I don't know, I don't know where we're going to go <laughs> financially. That is only a little piece of what he's talking about here. Because he says poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of what? What do you expect him to say? This is Matthew quoting Jesus. I would have thought he would have said the kingdom of God. But he didn't. He said the kingdom of heaven. And one of those reasons why maybe as Matthew quotes Yeshua saying the name of God is so sacred that he didn't say it. That's how Matthew records it. It's just just one one way to look at it. There's lots of others. But here's the verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I'm going to ask my wife if she could head upstairs. I've got a video that goes with this. And (laughs) this video really really impacted me. I hope it does for you. But as we're getting ready for that, there's a, and you can watch this YouTube video if you go search for it, it's called the Landfill Harmonic. It's a, it's a town in Paraguay where people live outside of a dump and they make their living by sorting through the trash finding what can be recycled, what can be refurbished, what can be resold, and in the middle of this think about what a landfill might smell like, and think about if that was your life. You smelled a land, maybe you'd get immune to it. I know where I worked, I didn't even smell the, the corn being processed after a while. You just kind of pff, tune it out. I don't think that's the case in a landfill. It's kind of like getting around a skunk it doesn't go away but in the middle of this there was a musician that had this idea he said what if I could create an orchestra in the middle of a landfill and so he found a picker and they started making instruments out of whatever they could find in the landfill so these are not you know high-priced violins and violas and cellos and things like that. This is instruments made out of junk. <laughs> and the Landfill Orchestra transformed that community. Because they were in the middle of what I would call a throwaway culture. We live in a throwaway culture, right? You've done work, what do you do? Throw it away. Get a new one. Amazon is only a click away. I've got a lot of my dad in me. He didn't throw anything away, which is probably not. Don't talk to my wife about that. Um, But in the middle of this throwaway culture, they found a way to turn mourning into laughing, weeping into joy as they watched their kids perform in the landfill Harmonic. You can find a YouTube video on that if, if you want to. So the the video that we're gonna to watch tonight really, really puts feet to this, this beatitude that Jesus taught. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And this this just really hits. So if you're ready, go ahead.
0: Fame, success, and the girls, and you get to the NBA, you have money. I mean, I really had it all. What else could a young kid want?
2: In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continues to take what we thought we knew about happiness and turn it upside down. The second beatitude goes like this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. Isn't that like another way of saying, happy are the sad? Just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Because from our perspective, happiness comes from our dreams coming true. We think we'll be happy when Life is good, and we get everything we want. If the Beatitudes were being written to describe how we feel about blessings from a cultural perspective, they would go something like this. Blessed are you when everything goes your way, or maybe blessed are you when all of your dreams come true.
0: Grew up in Long Beach, California. My parents separated when I was seven years old. In terms of church, my mom was the one who took me. What I took in terms of faith and ran with was, nobody's perfect. I'm going to live how I want. I'm gonna try, quote unquote, as hard as I can. And it wasn't very hard. Ultimately, if I mess up, you know, nobody's perfect. God's got me. And it kind of allowed me to have comfort in, in the afterlife and in God and heaven and everything, but also my own life and my own will. What more could you want? I have God and I have me. That was, that was, my, that was my gospel. I pretty much took that all the way until the beginning of my NBA career. My dad actually played basketball growing up. He introduced me to basketball when I was about five years old. I got in my first league at the YMCA, and it was something that I loved. It was something I was pretty good at. Ultimately, basketball was where my passion was. It was what I was the best at. So I stopped doing everything else outside of it. When I got to high school, I guess I started getting in tune with how good I really was. And it was one, just a sense of my own ego and pride, but also other people telling you like, oh, you, you're pretty good at this game. The more I succeeded in it, the more it became who I was. Everything about my life was basketball, whether, whether what I was eating, the relationships I had. If you're not with that, then you're not with that. You could see yourself to the door. It's just kind of how it was for me. Finally, I was being recruited heavily by a lot of different schools and a lot of big time schools, you know, in my opinion. My senior year, I was the guy for my college team and nationally recognized, it's kind of stereotypical. The higher I was going up in basketball, girls started coming. I took advantage of that, I did. Those were the perks, you're being recognized, uh, you're being praised, I mean, the human approval aspect of it all. It was like a drug for me, It it was a high, and I loved it. And I was living not just to succeed in basketball, but for people to like me. I realized that through basketball, I could achieve all this secular dream that I wanted. And at that time, in my young mind, I was feeling invincible. And so I was kind of doing whatever, as long as I was being safe with certain things. And by safe, there's huge quotation marks with that. The fame, success, you know, the girls, what else could a young kid want?
2: When we read, blessed are those who mourn, there's a tendency to squint at it just right so that we can dismiss it as poetic language but the poetry falls apart when you start to give some specifics so instead of just saying blessed are those who mourn what if you said blessed is the young widow raising four small children blessed is the person who loses a job blessed is the recovering alcoholic who has nothing left blessed is the woman whose husband leaves her for someone else then it just doesn't seem to make much sense, but Jesus promises there's a blessing for us in those moments when life just falls apart. Moments of heartbreak, moments of loss, the moments of deep disappointment, the moments when it feels like you've come to the end of yourself.
0: The day of the draft, I'm watching TV and I didn't want to watch with anybody because this is my moment to justify kind of my existence. There's only two rounds of basketball and if you get drafted in the second round then, you know, it's kind of hit or miss if you get a contract, so it's not guaranteed. They got through the first round and that's okay because I knew I wasn't really gonna get drafted there anyway. The beginning in the second round uh, comes up and so now I kind of have a feeling like that, that turning in my stomach. I got a text from my old strength coach and he texted me saying, congrats. And I'm like, as I saw that before. I'm like, what is he talking about? And as I look up, you know, they're calling my name. I ran out of the room and my dad was there too and my younger sister we all kind of met and we were just like screaming in the, in the room and I ran around my dad's apartment complex like, I was like this is it I am I have made it like this is it thank you thank you God in New York if you're doing well, basketball you like you can do anything you want in the town probably run around naked if you wanted to it's like that crazy they're treating you as if you're your own kind of demigod <laughs> I had a teammate named Jeremy Lin, and he just kind of took the NBA by storm. Couldn't go to restaurants without being, you know, mugged. We had to go out the back ways, through kitchens, and these are like five-star restaurants. And so, at that point too, I'm like, oh my goodness, it just took a whole nother league. This is better than being drafted. Like, now I'm drafted, established, and doing well. Like, what else could happen to me? I just got a new contract with Toronto Raptors. Getting that contract was, a oh, like more than a grand slam for me because I was expecting maybe half of that when I was speaking with my agent. And so when that came across, I mean, he was kind of at a loss for words too because he's just like, are you gonna take it? I'm like, am I gonna take it? Did ducks quack? At this point, I'm like, man, God's on my side. He's got me. This is it. Like, I'm in favor with the Lord. I just went how basketball went. If I was doing well, my emotions ran really high. If I was doing poorly in basketball, if I had a poor game, I was like in despair. and there's eighty two games in a season, So kind of the waves of going through that, it was just brutal. It was like it was never able to fully satisfy. and and once you get to that point, it's it's like a, it's lonely. Why am I so discouraged? I have everything this world can offer At that time, I'm dating my girlfriend. We were still at a place just doing our own thing. I've known this girl only a few months. She got pregnant. To me, that was that was the wind out of my sails because i was like that can't happen to me like that invincibility factor was still right in my mind and in my heart fast forward a few months after signing that huge contract i get to my first training camp and as i'm going up to shoot the ball out of nowhere my hand just starts curling kind of just just like this it curls like that Every shot is doing the same thing. When I'm trying to catch the ball, my hand is curling right before I catch it. When I'm dribbling, my hand starts to just claw up when I'm dribbling, and I'm like, Whoa, what is what is going on right now? I, I went to the trainers. I'm like, something's going on. Something's wrong with my hand. I think you just need to massage it, to kind of get it out, and came back the next day, the, sa- the second part of training camp, and it's happening again. And mind you there's no tingling there's no numbness there's no pain there's nothing outside of just when I go to shoot I'm like well this is this is not good because everything was affected by this so we go to a doctor in Toronto and he tells me, kind of, he's like I think something's going on at your wrist and the nerve is getting hit as you're shooting the ball or trying to catch or whatever kind of you're clinching whatever it is and so at that point I'm like okay that kind of makes sense but I want to get a second opinion. So I fly to New York to see this other hand specialist was you know renowned in the NBA and he's like no no it's not your wrist it's your elbow so every time you're going to shoot the ulnar nerve which is your funny bone is being pulled around that bone, so when you go up, it pulls and it curls it down. And so I'm like, okay, this is it. You know, let's. What, what do we need to do? Let's do it. So I had the surgery done. I finally get back on the court and we're working out, and I'm noticing it's still doing the same thing. Another few months pass. It's. It's now. It's like it's worse. It's just everything about it is just happening all over again. And I try to breathe and relax. And like, okay, just shoot the ball. Like you know, shoot the ball. And, didn't matter. Didn't matter how slow I went, or how fast I was going. It was just curling every time. Once I realized that the surgery basically didn't work, you know, I, I was like, okay, God, <laughs> enter God. <laughs> What's going on? Can you help heal me? You know, you know, you got a miracle up there somewhere. So let's get me back on my own path, my own will, and you know, I'll give you a few prayers that you need, and I'll be on my way. I, I continue to go through the summer, and I go to the next training camp. It's still going on. I, I had no way to kind of explain it to people because it was an injury so unheard of, you know, it, not only in the NBA, but a lot of sports. People, after signing this huge contract, they had expectations of me. And this is mostly kind of the fans, and they're like, you know, you, what are you, what, like, we gave you all this money, like, what are you doing? And I just want to turn to everybody and be like, you have no idea what's going on here. This is, it's the hardest thing ever, but I couldn't do that. Human approval was my drug, as well as when basketball's not going well. I mean, so you add those two things together and it's brewing for a storm.
2: The word that Jesus uses for mourn is the strongest word for mourning in the Greek language. A commentator William Barclay says that mourning that Jesus talks about is not only the sorrow which brings an ache to the heart, But it's the sorrow which brings unrestrainable tears to the eyes. So it's surprising that suffering would make room for us to know joy. That in suffering we could actually come to a deeper understanding of God's presence and his peace. That we could find a blessing. We simply can't know that blessing without weeping and without mourning. There's a blessing that comes when life gets hard. In the Old Testament, there's an example of the blessing that comes in mourning. We find it in the life of Job. Satan was looking forward to seeing Job come to the end of himself and also to the end of his faith, but that's not what happened. When we meet up with Job, he's living the good life. He's rich, he's happily married, everything seems to be going well for him. He has seven sons, three daughters. He has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, not to mention a small army of servants. And life is good, but then life begins to fall apart. He begins to experience some suffering. His dream life comes to an end, and he loses literally everything. A strong wind knocks down his house and kills his children, but that's just the beginning. In the second chapter, Job lost his health and he was infested with sores literally over every inch of his body. He lost all of his livestock, he lost his wealth, and Satan was betting on the fact that as Job lost everything, he would lose his faith in God as well.
0: My mind at this time is just kind of going nuts. You weren't just taking away basketball, you were taking me away. It's what I lived for and it's, it was my identity. You might as well just be physically punching me in the face or you might as well be slashing me across with a knife because basketball is me. I, I started thinking and it hit me. I'm like, why would I put all my hope and trust into something that is going to end anyway? This is kind of sparking that I need to get back into my faith. I need to see what really is really going on here with God. And so that led and and bred a whole just explosion of research and diving into the Bible and getting the context of stories and the biblical history. And it made me go back and really explore my faith and and just seeing how flawed I am to the core. At that point, I was still going through the Bible and kind of what it was about and the book of James. What really struck me was, you know, you believe you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. I'm like, what is that all about? Okay. And I'm like, so there must be a difference between just mentally assenting to Christ and, and, and who He is and, and actually following Him. I compartmentalized God and it was Him over here and I got everything over here. And if I need you, you know, I'll call on you. I wanted the comfort of the cross without the conviction. Obviously it wasn't a proper understanding of kind of biblical grace. I didn't understand that truly following Christ was a turning of sin, a turning of my own will, and following Him. Now I understand that what I was living by was by cheap grace, not just the saving faith and the the grace that's truly there. I go to the next training camp, and I'm like, okay, there's got to be something going on, because I'm still holding tight to my to my idol basketball, is still there. Like, I'm starting to realize that God is working in my life, but I'm like, I'm not ready to give this up yet. Like, let's continue and focus on me and what's going on, because it's still going on. I decide I'm gonna go back to the first doctor that I saw, who told me it was at my wrist. Had the surgery, a couple months of rehab, and uh, still going on. I get to a point where now I'm not even playing. Like, they can't play me. I physically can't do it. You're at the end of the bench, you're sitting in the last seat with some of the guys back there who don't play. Your pride kind of goes out the window and you start thinking of other people. And it was good for me because my whole life was about me and everything was about me, about basketball. And now this gives me a chance to kind of put myself on the rack and give other people what they need to succeed, whatever it is. You know, get to my third year with Toronto. At this point, my mind is like, it's in a much better place. I'm just like, okay, well, God, whatever, your will be done
2: even Job's wife says to him just curse God and die because really what good is God if life doesn't work out the way that you want it to but it turns out that Job experienced a blessing he knew God in a way that he'd never known God before Job said in the middle of all of his loss he said to God my ears had heard of you before but now my eyes have seen you And here's what we find, that in our suffering, there is a deep void that used to be filled by whatever it is we lost, could be stuff, or a job, or a relationship, none of those are bad things, but when those things are gone, it leaves this aching cavity, and God is there to fill it up with Himself. So when we suffer, we mourn, when we mourn, we are comforted by God's presence, so Blessed are those who mourn.
0: As I kind of dive into Christianity, you kind of get that kind of urgency to kind of do things the right way. So I'm like, okay, I got to propose. I got to get married. I need to repent of this sin and start living a pure life, married. (laughs) And uh, so we did that. Our marriage started off very rocky. Uh, It was getting to know a girl who, again, I barely knew. When God talks about, like, wait until you're married, I get it now. God's not a dictator just trying to establish some ruling on you because he's on a power trip. It's actually out of love that he's saying, just wait, get to know the person, You know, allow yourself to be emotionally naked before them, before you get physically naked before them. Every marriage still needs work, but it's a more solid foundation right now, and that's because ultimately we came to the point where we need to build this foundation, not on our wills or what we're doing, but on on Christ. And so out of him, is kind of uh, birthing a a, a wonderful marriage, in my opinion. I think she'd say the same. I hope she would. I can give her a call, we'll see. (laughs) What I was doing with my life was taking basketball, making it ultimate. It's dangerous territory when you're taking these wonderful things, gifts of God, and making them and putting them above the gift giver. God creating the perfect storm for my idols to weed them out and put himself in, and it was, at times, a very hard process. Ultimately, I realized that you have a good and loving purpose for this because you are good and loving towards us. It's something where the more I've come to know Him, the more I've come to trust Him, the more I've come to love Him, my prayers actually change in the process. Instead of saying, you know, Lord, bring back my career, heal my hand, you know, get me back to where I want to go. He's saying, I'm not going to do that for you. I'm gonna, instead of giving you basketball, I'm gonna give you myself. That godly sorrow uh, that I had for my idols is replaced by joy in Him, and the joy that I get in Him surpasses any kind of mourning that was, you know, in my life from basketball. I have something just so much more grand and beautiful and infinite than this finite game over here. I still love it, absolutely. It's fun to play, but now it's in its proper place in my life where I can look at it and just be satisfied. I have this hope now that is beyond comprehension. I, I can't sit here and fully explain to you what it is until you know you yourself go and experience this. Get to know God, get to know his character. He's revealed himself through his word, what he's done for you through Jesus on the cross. I mean, the, the ramifications, the implications of that are monumental and to have a proper understanding of that It makes your dreams just kind of like, whatever. Whatever I'm doing next, I hope it's for an overall good. I hope to magnify Christ. So I'm gonna bring my passion and need together. It's not glorifying me and who I am, but glorifying Him. It's crazy to get from where I'm at to that is, I I, 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 I don't even know what to say. (laughs) To me, it's amazing.
2: Of course, we do everything we can to avoid suffering. Of course, we want to stay away from any kind of personal difficulty or disappointment. But inevitably, we're going to experience our share of it. When we do experience it, we tend to want to stay away from mourning. And so when we catch ourselves mourning, we do everything in our power to just make it go away. We numb ourselves with entertainment, we medicate Mm. the pain away with drinking or shopping or working or partying. We may have to suffer, but nobody's gonna make us mourn. And so we try to shift our efforts to just getting over it. We wanna get past it. We wanna get around it. We wanna just move on from the broken heart of a wrecked relationship or the debilitating regret of a disastrous decision or the impossible options of a serious illness. But living in denial and blaming others or basking in the guilt is no way to live. Instead, when we turn to God, we find there's a blessing in those difficult moments. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this promise in Matthew, Chapter five, verse four, this way. He says, you're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you, because only then can you be embraced by the one who is most dear to you? So at the end of yourself, you have an opportunity to experience the presence of God in a way that you never have before.
1: driving home sometimes you just have to see it lived out to understand what scripture says I I keep going back to the Jesus revolution movie because that's what impacted me in my life and how Chuck Smith would invite stinky pot smoking hippies to come into his church I think we're going to see it again. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <coughs> excuse me. Blessed are those who are bankrupt in spirit. That's that's what that word poor means. In the Greek, it literally means to be begging, to be destitute, to be bankrupt. God's kingdom begins when you come to the end of yourself and have nothing to offer. So Kyle talked about a passage in Luke, and I just I want to read a few of the verses from that, Luke chapter 7. If you want to go with me, that's great. And we can't get the whole context of this, but Jesus is in this intense discussion with the Pharisees. Right? They're the lawkeepers, they're the religious. They're half of the Sanhedrin. They're, they're the good guys, right? And so, this guy named Simon apparently got stuck. And like at church, you know, you got a sign-up list. This is your week to host the pastor for Sunday lunch. Maybe we need to do that. That would be a good idea. Uh, anyway, so he got stuck. It was host the rabbi week for him. And... He really didn't want that rabbi in his house. And Kyle talked about that. There's a protocol. There's things you should do when you you invite somebody into your house, right? You kiss their hand as they come in. You provide foot washing because it was a, a dirty environment and the Jews really regarded cleanliness as being very high. And then you'd put some oil on the person's head. Simon didn't do any of that. So let, let's, um, let's start down at verse 36 of Luke chapter 7. I just want to get the, the flavor of this passage. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. I, I'm not sure he requested. I think he got stuck. And he entered the Pharisee's house, that would be Jesus, and reclined at the table. You know how they, they reclined at the table back then? There were no chairs. <laughs> They sat on the floor around the table and they kind of leaned. So if you've seen, you know, like the the Last Supper painting, that's kind of how it was. They were all leaning on the table off to the side with their feet stuck out. And behold, there was a woman. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. That's a polite way of saying it. And when she learned that he Jesus was reclining at the table, in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster vial of perfume. She was not invited. A good Pharisee would never invite a prostitute into his house, right? That, that'd be making themselves dirty. They couldn't even go to synagogue for a period of time because it'd be unclean. And standing behind him, Jesus, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, which was an indecent thing to do. To let your hair down in public was was something that would take you to divorce. A woman did not do that in public. That was shameful. And kissing his feet, and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. That she is a sinner. What does that tell you about Simon? As Kyle said, he's more broken than he ever realized. He's so broken that he doesn't even see it. The woman sees it. She's looked eye to eye with Jesus. She smiled at Him and He smiled back at her because He knew what was in her heart. He saw what was in her heart. So in verse 40, Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And He replied, okay. Say it, teacher. And then he tells a story about a, a money lender. And who is more grateful? The one to whom the greatest amount of money is given. That's the story. So, I'm going to skip ahead a few verses. You can read it on your own just for the reason of time. Um, verse 46, "...you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume." She took that flask that would have been given out one drop at a time to each of her clients. and she dumped it out. Because she said, I'm done. It's over. I've looked in the face of Jesus and things are different. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who was forgiven little loves little and he said to her your sins have been forgiven and those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves who is this man who even forgives sins and he said to the woman your faith has saved you go in peace so who would you rather be in this story would you rather be simon the pharisee Or would you rather be the the woman? And most of us would say, what? Both. I want to be religious, I want to look good on the outside, but I want to be broken on the inside, but I don't want to let anybody see that I'm broken on the inside. So we saw in in that video, to go to a strip club and minister, I mean that's just counterintuitive isn't it? Why would you go to a place of sin to try to bring Jesus? Well, duh, where do people need Jesus more? So in in this in this situation where Simon found himself, the woman found himself or herself, Jesus found herself, Jesus ends this story with what? Your sins are forgiven. Whether you realize it or not, each one of us is broken. In a different way, but each one of us is broken. So on the back of this sheet that I gave you uh, is is a, a story about a, a another YouTube video. It's from a sociologist by the name of Brene Brown. And the topic, the video is about 20 minutes. I would recommend you watch it. I put the, the link there if you want to type it in and watch the video. It is really good. She uses a few words that I wouldn't use, but she, she makes a very strong point about what it means to be vulnerable. And her statement that that really stuck with me as she talked about people that were obviously broken sex addicts drug addicts alcoholics she says you are those people you are one event away from becoming the people that you look down on i this is this is a, another powerful video that I'd suggest that you watch In Jeremiah chapter 18, there's a story about a potter, right? And he's sitting at the wheel spinning around making a pot and something happens finger slips whatever and he's got a pot that's it just did, malformed That's what I would look like when I was making if I were to try to make a pot, right? but what does he do the potter does what let's start over smashes that clay down and we'll do it again and he takes what was a mess and turns it into something beautiful i want to pass this around because there's a i'd never heard of this until i watched antiques roadshow so i'll pass this sheet around take a look at that just pass it on That this art that that you're going to see is called. It's a Japanese technique that began in the 1500s. It's called kintsui, where they would take a piece of ceramic pottery that broke. What would you do with it? As they would say in Britain, they'd bin it. It'd go in the dustbin. Uh, Yeah, I'd throw it away. It's broken. What the Japanese did was to glue it back together, take gold, and put it in all the cracks to make something that was throwaway into something that's beautiful. And in fact, some people actually broke their pottery so that they could have this thing done to it. Can you imagine that? It looks more beautiful after it was broken than it was before. Because it was just a bowl. It was just a cup. It was just a vase. But now it's covered in gold. That's what Jesus does. Once we're willing to come to the place that we say, I am broken. Raise my hand. Yes, I am broken. Now I can give in to brokenness and let Messiah change me from the inside out. Can I go to a strip club and offer a meal? Can I go to a bar and offer a meal? Yes. Is that where God's calling me? Not right now. But maybe He's calling me right next door to my neighbor that needs Jesus. It's that simple. I don't have to go to India or Africa. I can walk across the lawn. And all it takes is me to realize that I'm just as broken as Simon the Pharisee and once i do you are then broken to be whole and that's that was the the title that's the back side of your sheet and i would recommend that this week that you look at these questions i'm just going to challenge you look at the questions think of a time in your life when you knew jesus was real and present then write out your own conclusion to this sentence jesus became real when? Every one of us in this room can fill in the blank of that sentence. Maybe in different ways. So, what does bankrupt in spirit mean to you, and when have you experienced it? The last question How would you describe the blessings that follow being poor in spirit? That verse, Matthew 5, verse 3, we use the term blessed. I would use the word happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Broken to be made whole. This, this lesson really hit me. So, let's go this week and be Jesus people around us. Let's pray. Thank you Lord that Your word speaks, it speaks volumes, and your word speaks to me. Lord, I ask that it not only just speak to me, but that it change me from the inside out. Help me to admit my brokenness, and help me to be ready to be a servant in the way that you call each and every one of us thank you for your time tonight we thank you and we praise you in your blessed name Amen so in the next weeks we're gonna have more videos like this Kyle tells his story best by showing that illustration in a person's life we'll see a basketball player we'll see a baseball player and we'll see a musician all tell a different story all tied to one of the B additives. So come back next week.
0: Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time.